All right, so we will be in Ephesians chapter 2, 3, sorry, I'm a little jet lagged, so uh, my body thinks it's sometime in the late afternoon, I don't know, I can't do the math right now, uh, eight hours from now, so you can do that if you want to. And uh, we had a wonderful time in Israel. I don't know if, if you've never had a chance to go. I'd never had a chance to go. Just if you ever get the opportunity, just jump through that window. So, you know, sell a car or whatever and go. But, um, or two cars. But if you need to do it, if you get a chance to do it, just go. And it'll, it'll change your life. You'll never, ever, ever read the Bible the same. Um, and I would just encourage you to, to jump in there. There's also a whole lot of... Uh, um, things that you can do, books you can read, and, and uh, resources that you can use to, uh, to get a better grip on what it is that you're reading in the Bible. But it was a wonderful trip. In Ephesians, Paul has begun this discussion, starting off from chapter 1, of uh, explaining all these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, that we have been, we've been chosen by him, and then explaining to, um, to us these, the great riches that we have that are to the praise of God's glory, then this, uh, he has a prayer in chapter 1 where he is walking through, uh, giving, giving sp- some specific thanks for those things. And then he, he explains in chapter 2 the, where we have come from, this idea that we were dead in our sins and transgressions and what he has redeemed us from and to. We've been made for good works. And then he goes into this wonderful explanation of, of the, the merging of the, the Gentile and the Jew, these groups who are totally separated and, I mean, whew, there is a, the Middle East is a divided land. Israel is a very incredibly divided land and has been contested forever. It is, in a, it is a place of walls. It is a place of division. And yet in the gospel, he has made two groups that were very separated into one. And I encourage you to go back and listen to all those sermons. But he rolls into chapter uh, 3 with this... Um, explanation once again of, well, there's this phrase, for this reason, which we're going to hit in 314, if you wonder why I'm going back to there. It says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles. Then he goes on a bit of a, of a parenthetical discussion explaining uh, the mystery that has been revealed through him to the, to the Gentiles that uh, the gospel is for all people. And then he asked them not to be discouraged because he was in prison. So when he says in verse 14, for this reason I kneel, the context of that is that he has come around really in this longer discussion of what Christ has done for us, and now that it is for the Gentiles, it's when it says for this reason I kneel, it's not just because oftentimes when you read for this reason or therefore you go up to the next verse and say, oh, well, that, but this one just says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged. But it's not just entirely that he's asking them not to be discouraged. It's because of this entire great work that Christ has done in the redemptive work of of, uh, working out the plan of God. So we're in Ephesians 3, 14. And before I read it, I need to pray again because my brain is like all over the place. I've got like 27 bazillion things running through my head. It's trying to download all the pictures I had right now from the Holy Land. So but we're here in Ephesians 3, 14. So I already got my brain there, and I'm going to ask Jesus to help me right in front of you all. So, Lord, I love you. And I love that you are the God of, of all time and space and place. And even when my mind is, is zooming through uh, an incredible 
trip and zooming through all the connections that are made as we read through this word, read through the Bible with all the history and the reality of life on planet Earth. I ask you, Lord Jesus, to open up your word to us today, to teach us from this passage, to teach us as we look at what it means to be in God's family, Lord, as we look at what it means to um, uh, be able to experience and explore the immeasurable love of God, and as we look at applying those things to our lives, would you transform how we think, transform our heart, our, our very inner being of who we are as we open your word today? We entrust this time to you. We ask for your spirit to work through the preaching of your word today. Um, teach us more of who you are. And Lord, would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you encourage us where we need to be encouraged? And would we walk away with a better understanding, Lord Jesus, of how we are to live out this beautiful life that you have given us in the redemption from our sins and the truth that you have given us, a life that is to be full of good works, a life full of joy, a life full of hope, and a life full of the gospel. Help us, Lord Jesus. We lift all these things up in your name. Amen. Okay. Ephesians 3, 14. We're going to through the end of the chapter, through 21. So Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. There's a lot in there, but we are going to work our way through it. So I already met, talked about the for this reason, why Paul is saying all these things. But then I want you to look at this. The next thing he says is, I kneel. This, the, the, the posture that Paul has as he is praying, uh, you know, sometimes you'll think about, um, I once had someone tell me if you never cussed while you're praying, you probably never really prayed. And while that's true, um, that's out of more of out of human frustration. This idea of the posture of Paul's heart is one of absolute humility. And he says, so I kneel, but before whom is he kneeling? Before our Heavenly Father. I kneel before the Father. Even the picture of that, right, of, of a child kneeling down, like prostrate before their father. It's one of humility. It's one of intimacy. For this reason, I kneel before the, fa uh, before the Father. Who is this? From whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So when we look at the concept of what a family is, um, even the, something as non-spiritual as the U.S. Census Bureau has an idea of what a family is. And so they, they interview homes or, or households or family members, and um, like you can't just stick random people on your taxes. You have to actually have some sort of relationship with them. It can't just be like me and, me and Carl who lives in, you know, whatever, Yuma, I mean, if we're going to file taxes together and jointly, and the government will be like, no, no, you're not, you have to be family. Or I'm going to have this person as a dependent, or we can't just have random, you have to have this relationship with someone. And normally a family is this concept of a, of a group of people who are bound either by blood, they have a, a, a shared physical heritage, uh, you're, we are connected somewhere with our ancestors, or 
or, uh, or through, through marriage. Uh, two people get married and then they create a family or through adoption. You've got a legal family that gets formed through, through blood or heritage, marriage or adoption. But when he says this whole, from whom his whole family, if you look at the words there, he's that whose family? Well, it's the father's family. The heavenly father has a family and you and I are part of it. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth. Where is this family? This family exists in heaven, meaning the, the, the created order apart from where we are here on planet earth that is not, uh, has not been under the effects of sin. Heaven does not need to be redeemed. Heaven does not need to be uh, rescued. Heaven where God dwells is not uh, broken by sin, but Clearly, earth is. Where you and I are walking around, sin has broken it. So the family of God is both in heaven, meaning he has called many of his children home, and we are on earth. You and I sitting here today, all the people of God's, uh, who, are, who can call God their father on earth are part of this family. So it isn't just separated by the things that normally separate us, which would be death or distance or whatever are the things that separate heaven and earth. So this family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So this idea of a derived name is, is you know, I don't have, um, well, most of you have a name that you grew up with because it was uh, your dad's name. And, you know, I'm a Scott because my dad's last name was Scott and his dad's last name was Scott and his, that, my grandfather's father's last name is Scott and on and on it goes until whenever the Scott started. I don't know, I assume it's Scotland somewhere. And you go all the way back, and we're all connected. We have a last name, a surname that we have that connects us to a family. I, my, my kids are the Scott kids, and they're Scott kids because I was a Scott kid. And you go on and on and on and on back, right? This idea of where does your name come from. So it doesn't give us a surname. It doesn't say God the Father last name or the children of. It just says that he kneels before the Father from whom this whole family in heaven and earth drives his name, so that God has a family. So this is a really key concept in Scripture. So God as a father is, a, is not something that was comprehended very much in the Old Testament. He was distant, not distant, excuse me. He was holy, and he was separated from us because of his holiness. Even in the setup of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, they had a, a tabernacle or a... a, a, a a temple, and that temple was very much divided. It was divided from Gentiles, and women could go into one part, and men could go in another part, and priests could go in another part, and only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies. That was it. It was separated by a physical veil, because if you crossed into that veil, you would die. As we studied through Hebrews a couple years ago, it's this beautiful explanation of the access that we now have to God. But not only do we have access to God in His holiness, we have now been given a name that God calls himself our father. So we're going to dive into this a little bit more later. But the reality that God has a family in heaven and on earth that is not separated by things that normally separate it, and that we get our name from him. Okay, so for this reason, I kneel. This is his posture. And then I pray. This is his petition. He's asking God for something. I pray that out of his glorious riches... Um, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So he's asking God to do something. And Treb talked a little earlier about the, the reality that we don't, we are not enough. 
but that Christ is enough. And so Paul is not saying, I pray that out of his glorious riches that I may have my own you know, human power and strength to do. No, that he may strengthen you, the people that Paul is praying for, with what? Power. How? Through his spirit. Where? In your inner being. All right. Out of his glorious riches, or out of the riches of his glory. If you think about uh, the concept of immeasurableness, which we'll get into in just a little bit, or infinite, it, is, it means that it's unmeasured. It doesn't mean that it's really, really large, or that it's exceedingly huge. How big is the container of the glory of God's, or the, the, the riches of his glory? How much glory does God have? His all of it. For much there would ever be, he is the utter fulfillment and the manifestation of all glory that we can ever possibly think of. Out of his glorious riches or the riches of his glory, Paul is asking that our heavenly father would do what? Strengthen us. It's this idea to be, to be, have strength is to have the capacity to do something. I'm not strong enough or I am strong enough. I'm strong enough to pick this piece of paper up. Oh, great. Have the capacity to, to do it. Uh, energy or power is the energy to do something. So I may be strong enough, but maybe I'm weak because I'm tired or I'm sick or something. So maybe I have the capacity to do something, but I lack the power. So Paul is saying that we both lack the capacity and the power to do something. He's asking them that they may be strengthened with power. And then the mechanism of that is the Holy Spirit. How is it that we receive God's strength and power? It is through his spirit. And where do we receive it? In the inner being. It's uh, literally the, the, the inner human being, that part of us, the immaterial self that you and I possess that is, separates us from the rest of the created order. I joke about this all the time, that dolphins don't like, I don't think dolphins, by the way. I guess I, maybe dolphins. Maybe in glory, God will be like, the dolphins do on along. But animals don't sit around and ponder, like our cat uh, or our, our dog. Have you ever met our dog, Shayla? She doesn't ponder a whole lot. She's not the brightest, you know, whatever, pencil in the box, but sharpest, brightest bulb in the... She's not a smart dog. So... Shayla just likes to be pet, she likes to eat, and she's not sitting there pondering, oh, I lack, the, I lack the inner, the strength in my inner dog to go talk to the other dogs about Jesus. And that's not what she's doing, right? She's like, I want to eat, I want you to pet me, I want to get things what I want, I want to sleep here, I want to chew this thing, I need to go outside, lather, rinse, repeat. That's, that's the dog's life. Human beings have within us things for which we lack the power and for which we lack the strength. Things that we yearn to do. Have you ever yearned to do something as a child of God that you said, Lord, I do not have the strength to do it. I do not have the power. I lack the capacity and I lack the energy to do what you're calling me to do. Have you ever felt that way? Paul knows that and he is asking God to do something. To give them strength and power. For what? We keep reading. Verse 17. So that... Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay, wait a minute. So I like wanted to pray that I've got power and strength so I can like, I don't know, fly or do superpower stuff. He is asking for God to pull out of the infinite riches of his glory to strengthen and empower us so that what can happen? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So let me ask you a question. Does Christ dwell in your hearts through faith because you're doing it all right? Because you're living a perfect life? 
Because you're making all the right decisions because you were being a perfect son or daughter of God? No. He dwells in your heart through faith because the glorious riches of God's power are manifest in you through the Holy Spirit, which is a mouthful. But that is what is going on. So that Christ may dwell. So this idea of dwelling really goes back even to the temple, that God's presence dwelt among humanity. It dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And then leaves and then returns at Pentecost. When the Spirit comes in the church, we just sang a song about it, and the church is born. And it says Christ dwells in your hearts. That means to make a, a permanent residence somewhere. Like Jesus does not just want to crash on the couch of your heart and be like, hey, I'm going to come over and hang out for a little while and I'm going to go to other stuff. He wants to be at home there. He wants to dwell in your hearts through faith. I mean, if you don't believe in Jesus, like he's not going to dwell there, okay? You don't have to go into a whole lot of theological discussion. If you're like, Jesus is not real, well, we've got to talk about other things. But we're not going to discuss what it looks like for him to dwell in your heart if you don't have faith that he exists and died on the cross and rose, for the dead, rose from the dead for your sins. But he's praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Make his home there. Inhabit your heart. And if your heart is anything like my heart, there may be things in there that... Well, like when you want to have somebody over, uh, if you have warning, if you call us before you come over, we, will, we have different modes of pickup at our house. We have for like people in our life group or whatever, we don't pick up for you guys anymore. Like y'all just come over. You're done. Uh, you can just show up and the house is how it is. Sometimes there might be laundry on the couch. Whatever. Laundry ends up on the couch. That's the processing point where it gets, before it gets folded and put back, before it immediately gets dirtied and sullied and thrown back. It's a big, it's an endless cycle. But if we don't know you're coming, you may get laundry on the couch. If we get a five-minute warning, there's a certain amount of pickup we might do. Maybe we uh, scoot the shoes over, or maybe we uh, put the laundry in the living room instead of in the TV room or whatever. Or maybe we throw the laundry on me and Jenny's bed and close the door. But anyway, if you got a little warning, if you're going to come and you're going to like sleep in our house and we know you're coming, we're going to make sure it's nice and clean. We want to ready the place for you, right? Um, do you have to make your heart super duper clean so that Jesus will come and live there? No. Who makes it super duper duper clean? He does. That's what he's doing there. He's not coming into your heart to point out all the things you're doing wrong. He's coming in there to, re, to engage in the redemptive process of making you like him. Amen. He's not like a, he's the guy that comes over and does the dishes. He's the friend that comes over and sees the laundry on the couch and starts to fold it and put it away. He doesn't sit there and judge you because you have unfolded laundry on the couch. He doesn't judge you because your floors aren't clean. He comes in and he gets a mop and he works. That's what he does in our heart. So when Paul says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, this is a good thing. All right. And I pray that you, there's a second thing, that you being rooted and established in love. This is a long sentence with a lot of commas. Um, okay, we're going to break it up. So, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love. This word for rooted, um, the, it's, it's this organic kind of horticultural phrase. is where we get the, the word um, uh, rhizome from, where things, the, Greek, the original word is where we get the word Rhizomes. Like if you think about bamboo, has anyone ever dug up bamboo from their yard? Or Bermuda grass? So that's a grass that, any, any kind of grass that creeps and puts down little things that shoot in the ground and creeps and shoots down, or it goes underground and then it sends up shoots and grows underground like bamboo, it's a nightmare. 
just ask the Sweet Parsons. Our whole life group had to come over there to dig up bamboo out of their yard, and it's, I'm still there. And so it like grows under, and it's impossible to get up because when you chop off one, you got to dig the whole thing out. It's this idea that you, being rooted, having these unbelievably hard-to-pull-up little nodes of something in your heart, and uh, established, that's a, uh, like an architecture word, like grounded, that you're connected to the foundation. So I pray that you, being rooted and established in what? Love. Does it say being rooted and established in knowledge? Or rooted and established in good works? Does it say be rooted and established in prayer? No, those are all good things, right? Like I want you to be rooted and established in prayer. But Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants us, as Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, to be rooted. And when I say rooted, once again, like Bermuda in your yard that you cannot get out. And that it goes under the fence and gets in your neighbor's yard. Like, I want God's love in your heart to be immovable. Doesn't matter who brings in what, it keeps popping up. Like an annoying, a, like Bermuda grass in a, in a flower bed. It's just always there. You can cover it up. You can put mulch over it. You put down these fancy things. You try to spray. You can't get rid of it. I want, not just I, but God wants your, because it doesn't really matter what I want. What does God want? He wants that your heart, he wants his love to be so rooted and established in your heart that no one else can pull it out. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may do what? Have, once again, power. Because you lack the power to do what? Together with all the saints, a little parenthetical phrase, not just you, not just me, all of us who call Christ our Lord and Savior, power to do what? To grasp. To grasp what? How wide and how long and how high and deep is the love of Christ. Paul is not asking us to get out the measuring tape and be like, God's love is this wide and this wide and this tall and this deep. And You might know how deep a swimming pool is, but that is not the purpose of the swimming pool, correct? What is the purpose of a swimming pool? To swim in it. You might know how wide and how deep a lake is, but if you just, yay, I have this knowledge, it's no fun if you don't get in. We were at the Dead Sea, and I floated in the Dead Sea, which is like top five world experiences that I've ever experienced in my life. It's super weird and wonderful and scary and cool and kind of dirty. But anyway, that lake is like a, super deep. It's one thing for me to say, I know how deep the Dead Sea is. It's a whole other thing for me to get in the water and float it and then rub the mud on my body and be like, I floated in the Dead Sea. It's way different to say I know something than it is to experience something, right? When he says to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know his love that surpasses knowledge, he is talking about experiencing the immeasurable wonder of God's love. You can't measure the infinite. That's what the word means. Infinite. Finite means it has an ending. In means it doesn't. Infinite. No measure. No end. No beginning. How do you measure something without a beginning and an end? Where do you put the tape? You can't. So when he says to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know Spanish lesson, there's two words for, for to know something in Spanish. One is saber, and that's like information. Like I know, um, I know on the map, I know 
uh, Jerusalem on a map, right? That's the word saber. Like I know I could details, I know where it is. I, I was walking in it two days ago, I got shawarma on my pants in Jerusalem, okay? I now can say I know the verb in Spanish is conocer. It's, to, it's the experiential knowledge. I now know the city of Jerusalem. Like I've smelled it, I've touched it, I, I, I got food on my pants there. When he is saying to know this love that surpasses knowledge, when they translate from Greek to Spanish, they use the word conocer. I now know the love that surpasses knowledge. I have experiential love. How do you get experience in a giant pool of water? You get in. You get in. There's no good for me to go to the Dead Sea and not get in the water. Get in the water. You're there. And Paul is saying, listen to me. I am calling down from our Heavenly Father the full riches of his glory to strengthen you with power through his Spirit. One, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ is at home and that you let him in and let him get to work. And two, that you being rooted and established in love may have power with all the saints to experience the immeasurable and infinite and to know the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge to experience the fullness of his love. So that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Whoa. What is the fullness of the measure of God? Like how big of a measuring cup will hold that? I mean, there isn't one, of course, because it's, once again, infinite. And by definition, immeasurable. And yet, Paul is praying that we can know the unknowable and be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. It's kind of like if my heart has a size container. You know, have you ever heard somebody say, you say this with kids all the time. You want them to you want them to fill their buckets, right? Like you want them to go to bed with their buckets full. You want them to go to, church, go to school with their buckets full. Fill their bucket. Do you know what that means? If you are leaving for work and you have a fight with your spouse, your buckets kind of, you drop down a little bit. You're like, oh, I was an idiot, and she was an idiot, and blah, and I shouldn't, blah, blah, blah. You're having a fight, but you got to go. You get into work. You're driving in your car. Your bucket's a little empty, okay? Or uh, something happens. You're on the way to work, and you get a phone call, and a, a dear friend is sick with cancer. The bucket drops down. You go, and you're tired. You're sick. You're a human, and you're living life on a fallen planet, right? Our buckets are constantly low. Now, one of the things that we can do as believers is fill each other's buckets, right? I can find you. I can encourage you. I can fill your bucket with the truth. I can say, okay, where's your bucket? How's your bucket? Dump it. Overflow it. Let's have that thing just rolling over like a rain, rainwater barrel just overflowing and water's pouring out everywhere. You're good for the next 30 minutes until life happens again, and then you're going to drop down a little bit. So we need each other to do that. But he is asking that we may be filled to the measure. And you think about in the Old Testament a lot of times when they're talking about God's what, uh, measuring something that God does. It's like, have you ever filled a measuring cup with flour? And uh, you've got it full of something, but then you've got to like, you tamp it down, and you tamp that thing down, and you scrape it off so that it's this exact full measure. That is the kind of fullness that we're talking about. No space left filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Do you know that you have a place in your being that is meant to be filled with the fullness of God? The fullness of God. I don't know that I will ever grasp what that means. How can I? How can I grasp the infinite when I am finite? I had a beginning. 
We all had a beginning. And yet we have been tasked with knowing the infinite and unknowable to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Not a knowable, but a knowledge that surpasses knowledge. Okay, keep going. Now, to who? To him who is able. What is he able to do? He is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. How? According to his power. Where is that power? It is working within us. To him be glory. Where? In the church. That's us. Everybody who claims uh, Christ as their Lord and Savior. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. For what's the time frame there? Throughout all generations, that's, that's past and present. So I've got all the generations that went before me and the generation that's happening right now and forever and ever. That's onwards into eternity without end. So he's praying that we would be able, that he who was able to do, uh, he was able to do more than we can ask or imagine according to his power, that to him would be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations. Paul is asking for something that God is doing anyway. You know, that's most of what prayer is is asking the Lord to do what he's already doing. Well, why would we pray for that? It's, pro- it's because when we pray, God works in our heart. It's not necessarily that like, my friend wants a Ferrari. I mean, I, I guess if I had a Ferrari, you'd give it to Trev and he'd sell it and use it for something else. But uh, it's that while we pray, it is the demonstration, it is the putting into action our actual trust in the Lord. So if I believe that God will do these things, why don't we ask him to do them? It's because we don't trust that he'll actually do it. Now, Paul believes fully that God is able to do these things. Not only those things, but more than we can ask or imagine. How much can you imagine? How much can the entirety of humanity that has ever existed on planet Earth imagine? How many words have we written as a people? How many thoughts has humanity had? We have no way to even count that, do we? How many trillions and trillions upon trillions and 10 to the 500 billion, how many would it be? It would be less than the love of God. Because he is able to do immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine. Can you ask God to do something that he is incapable of doing? It's not a trick question. I'm not saying like, God, make a rock so big that you can't lift it, or something dumb like that. Anyway, sorry, those arguments drive me crazy. Which, especially because they come from atheists. They're like, well, can God make a rock? I'm like, so you're saying there's a God? Or is our argument, I mean, come on, what are we doing here? Anyway, so, that he is able to do immeasurably more than you ask or imagine how, according to his power, which is infinite. Why? For his glory. The infinite glory of God gets manifest through all of us bozos, called the church called his children, called God's family, and in Christ Jesus, now until forever. All right, so a couple kind of takeaways from this. There's a lot here, by the way. Um, That's the way it always is when you're preaching, but or when you're going through the Bible. If you read through the Bible and you do it on a regular basis, is you read something one time, two times, ten times, a hundred times, it's new every time you read it. It's the wonder, beauty of the Word of God. But a couple of things I wanted to hit on. One is that you have a family, okay? I know that the word family is a bit of a loaded word. Um, some of you, if I say the word family, you get excited, and you're like, oh, 
like smells pop into your nose. You're thinking about the way that your grandma's pumpkin pie smells. And you're like, oh, I think of Thanksgiving, Christmas, and family. Oh, gosh, I miss your family. Oh, I can't wait to get in here and call my mom. Oh, my sister, I haven't. That may be your experience. Some of you are now laughing at me because you're like, oh, my gosh, have you seen my family? No, I don't. What are you talking about? What is this family thing you're talking Mine is a disaster. We don't talk. When we're around each other, I get beat down. I get. Some of you came from a family who abused you or left you or on purpose hurt you. The word family does not necessarily mean something good for everyone in here. When we say the family of God, we mean something that is meant to be good. Now, we in our sin and brokenness break it. But that does not remove from us the reality that we have a father, a heavenly father who is head over our family. We met this guy, or this guy named Roche, and he was, uh, Rauf, excuse me. He's my brother in Christ. He is an Assyrian Orthodox Christian, which means we've got some wildly different things that we believe. He claims Christ as his Lord and Savior. I know we've got lots of discussions about lots of other things. We call each other brother in Christ. He will sit with me and worship Christ for eternity. He's in the family. We spend a lot of time as churches trying to figure out who's in the family. Well, that's not our job. Our job is to tell people how to get in and then to love the ones who are there. That's our job. Now, yes, we speak the truth. We just go to the Bible and say, let's read what the Bible says. Instead of arguing about what I think the Bible says, let's just go and talk about what it actually says. And a lot of things get cleared up when we do that. But the reality is that you are part of a family. So because you're part of a family, because you're part of the Scott family, there's certain things you have to do. Like you have chores, you have blah, blah, blah. You're supposed to get the love from, love from Jenny and I. You're supposed to get uh, uh, all these things that kids are supposed to get that Jenny and I do or don't do well on some days and not so well on others. To be a Scott kid means that there are certain things that happen because of who you are. Because you are in God's family, you can do some things. And that's what we're going to talk about next. One, you can approach your heavenly father with bold and confidence, with boldness and confidence. Why? Because Christ has won you that right. He won that right for you by his death on the cross that paid for your sins and by his resurrection from the dead that defeated sin and death. And he has called us to himself. He calls us his brother. We are part of God's family. John 1 says that everybody who believes in his name has been given the right to be called the child of God. You have that right. And you have the right to approach your heavenly father. And you have the right to approach him in humility. For this reason, I kneel before the father. Now, I don't always approach our heavenly father with humility. Sometimes I'm mad because I'm a human. My kids don't always approach me with humility or respect. Sometimes they're mad or they're frustrated or they're tired or they're sick or whatever. I don't, when they come to me and they're grumpy or they forgot a homework project and they're freaking out and it's like late at night and they don't know what to do and they're yelling at me, I don't like slap them and be like, you're out of the family. And that'd be crazy. That would be nuts. That's just like, I guess no one should do that. Anybody. God does not do that. He doesn't kick you out when you're freaking out. The opposite happens. When you're going nuts, he pulls you in. He draws you closer. And if you've ever experienced that in a conversation with your heavenly father where you've lost your mind and you go, Jesus has come to me all her weary and heavy burden, and you come to him, you've experienced his beautiful reception of your mess, right? 
So because you have a family and we have a heavenly father, we can approach him with absolute humility. And being a part of God's family does not, by the way, erase like your individuality. It, he loves each of us as individuals created you with your personality and all these things about you that make you you. doesn't erase that, but it is this place where the things that make you you get bonked around a little bit as you bump elbows with your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're in church long enough, you're going to run into somebody who's going to make you mad or upset you, or you're not going to like what they do, or how they do it, or you're not going to like what the, how they, when they believe Jesus is coming back, or what kind of clothes they wear, or how they keep their yard, or how they raise their kids, or whatever. Something. Guess what? Welcome to the family. That is called sanctification, and is a beautiful process that God has given us to make us more like Jesus. So if you get mad in your church, don't leave. Engage. Because you're in a family. So, as you approach the Father with humility... I want you to one, I want you to receive his power and his presence. It does no good to, for one of my kids to come up to me if they're sad and I bring my arm around them. I don't want to speak words of encouragement to them for them to like stab me in the back with a fork and close their, put their hands over their ears. I'm like, what are you doing? Were you sad? Were you broken? Were you, are you having a hard day? You want me to like, why are you stabbing? What, what are you doing? You have to receive his power and his presence. That means let the Lord Jesus come into your heart and clean stuff up. Don't go into your quiet time and be like, Lord, I'm not letting you in. And I'm like, he knows anyway, okay? He knows that your dishes are dirty in the sink, so to speak. Using a metaphor, dish in the sink for sin, not the dish in the sink for sin, so don't take anything too far. The idea, there are things that he wants to order in our home, in our heart, in our mind, how we think and how we live, and we have to let him in to do that. It's this process of receiving what he is giving us. With humility, I receive the Lord's rebuke, I receive his training, I receive his discipline. So receive his power and his presence in your life. Next thing, because you're in a family, you get to pursue maturity. One of the reasons that God gives humans this really long childhood, it's long. Longer in some cultures, I guess. I guess in our culture, it's getting a little longer. I don't know how or why. I got a lot of talk. We can talk about that later over beer or something later. But anyway, or a cup of coffee if you don't drink beer, anything. I don't care. But... Um, it's long. It's like 18 to 20-ish something years until you're sort of kind of an adult, terrified and out of your parents' house and you have no idea what you're doing and then you get married and you have kids who still don't know what you're doing and then you spend your whole life being, I don't know what I'm doing and you get to like, and I come up to ask all you guys who've raised kids and have like grandkids or great-grandkids and I'm like, how did you do what you did? And you're like, I don't know. We prayed a lot. I'm like, well, that doesn't help me. This is life. The reality that you raise kids. They don't just like, do it on their own. Ask the Taz, who have four children uh, under three. There's a lot of work going on. The parents are very busy. Our Heavenly Father is about the work of growing us to look like Jesus, to growing us and maturing us into the image of the Son. You can either engage in that process or you can run away from it. I'm asking you to pursue it. Pursue maturity. It's much easier if you've ever taught anybody anything. Like if, if you're a teacher in the audience, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you try to teach a kid something who doesn't want to learn, you can't. You can talk at them. You can show them things, but they won't learn anything. If you don't pursue maturity in Christ, you're not going to grow. It doesn't happen. 
But we have been given, look at this, we've been given power, we've been given uh, strength, so that Christ can come and dwell in my heart. And who does the process of maturation? It's Jesus. He is the one who transforms us from the inside out. He transforms who I am. He transforms how I think. He transforms my affections so that I love the things that he love, loves and I hate the things that he hates. He does it. Nowhere in this passage does Paul say, I want you to make yourself really, really awesome. He doesn't say that. I want you to take the full measure of your capacity as a human being and I want you to engage it. I want you to plan it. I want you to budget it. I want you to get resources from your friends and I want you to use all those resources to make yourself like Jesus. That is not the gospel. It's impossible. Only Christ can do it. But the image that we're given with Jesus is to be yoked with him. Come to me all who are heavy and weary, burden, uh, weary heavy, <laughs> My brain. Come to me, all who are uh, weary and heavy burdened, and I, and, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in spirit. You know, imagine a yoke with two yokes, and Jesus pulling the weight. Sometimes I feel like I'm like laying down on the ground, and he's like, come on, this is a, probably bad theology, but Jesus is like, you know, tugging me. He's like, come on, get up, get up, Brandon. just dragging me along. I learn a lot more when I'm walking beside Jesus, listening to what he's teaching me. But that ha happens when I approach him with humility, when I receive what he's teaching me, and in that way pursue maturity. Um, finally, this last part here, this idea of uh, this immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine. So, let's say, I don't know who's some kind of will, let's say you're, you're like... Um, now the, the British royals have all this baggage. But anyway, so let's say you've got a the royal family, right? You think about lots of money. Let's say you're in the royal family and you're in trouble. You've got some resources at your disposal, right? You can, like, call, you know, king, whoever, I don't know who's a king over there anymore. Who's the guy? Sorry, not a royals guy. Uh, call the king of England and be like, hey, um, I'm in a pickle. Chances are he can do something, you know? Like if, you're, if your dad's the president of the United States and you like get a speeding ticket, I'm not saying to do this, but chances are that's going to go away. Why? Because of whose kid you are. Hate to say it, it's just reality. We've all seen it done in a negative way. Let me ask you this. Is there a situation that you can come up with your life, or that you can get yourself into or be in, in which your heavenly father cannot offer you help? No. Does that mean that he will relieve you of the circumstance? Not always. Does it mean that he will be there with you in the process? Yes. There is a vast difference walking through the valley of the shadow of death by yourself than there is with the good shepherd leading you through, setting up a table in the presence of your enemies. There is a vast difference walking through tragedy alone in your own power and walking through tragedy yoked to Jesus as he's teaching you I'm sorry, I know this hurts. Learn from this. This is what suffering looks like. Learn from my suffering. Paul does not say here that he can, he's able to do a measure of more than we ask or think, and we ask for a bigger house. If you're asking for a bigger house, you can fill it with orphans, awesome. Or asking for a bigger house, you can fill it with more people to do more ministry, woohoo. If you're asking for a bigger house so that you can, I don't know, there's a billboard overhead that says, be well addressed with quotes. 
If that's what you want, I, I, don't, I really don't think that God really cares how big your house is. Jesus's was real small. Matter of fact, it didn't even have one, so it was non-existent. So if God thought that everybody needed a really big house, everybody would have a really big house, okay? This is not what Paul is telling us that he's asking God to do. We have an infinite and immeasurable God. We should ask him for impossible things, like restore this relationship with my mom. Lord, save my wayward child. Lord, uh, help me have a good relationship with my neighbor. Lord, help me get my finances in order. Lord, uh, make this nation righteous again. Lord, help us to fight the injustice that is right in front of us. Lord, help me to love the widow and the orphan. Do you see what we're asking for? We're asking for the things that God is already asking us to do, but that we lack the power to do them. Lord, help me love my wife. Lord, help me submit to my husband. Lord, help me train my children up in the way that they should go so that when they're old, they will not depart from it. These are impossible things unless God is doing them. Lord, help us be a church that is a city on a hill, a light that cannot be covered, that is so full of good works that the neighborhood is like, you guys are never leaving here because of all the good things you're doing. I don't know what that looks like, but I want to be that kind of a church. I want to be a church that so loves the people across the street at the dispensary or the church next door or the store down the street or the neighbors that live over that way or the guys that are across 36 or whatever that they know who God is because of how we love them. How cool would that be? I want each of your homes to be embassies for the gospel, places where the citizens of heaven gather and do the stuff of God's people, where your neighbors, you're like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, he's a believer. What do you know about it? I just know that they're awesome. Every time you need help, he's there. And when there's a tragedy, they're around. And when somebody catches on fire, they help put it out. And when there's whatever, that we love our neighbor in such a way that the gospel is absolutely irrefutable. Because when they come to talk to you about it, there's no argument and you're, because you've loved them so well. I've never had a conversation with an atheist that I've known for a long time. Never. I've had conversations with atheists that are strangers. Because if you know us for a long time, the Scots don't do a whole lot well. Kind of like this church. But man, we will love your face off. I don't even know what that looks like to listen to face off, but it feels like it's pretty intense. So we, well, we love people. We don't always do it very well. But that is the core of our family is that we love other people well and we have a lot of dirty laundry on the, on the couch, that will be okay. That will be okay. It does not say thou shalt dust every part of your house or make sure that all your dishes are never dirty. All right, if your dishes are never dirty, you're not using them. Just give them to someone who has no dishes. But love people in such a way that it would be impossible for them to deny the reality of the gospel. And in order to do that, you're going to have to kneel before God, and you're going to have to receive his glorious riches, his strength and his power. Christ is going to have to dwell in your heart through faith. You're going to have to be rooted and established in love, having power together with all the saints to experience the immeasurable love of God, to know it, to be filled with it, and then to be able to communicate that love to a broken world. And when we are doing that, to him be the glory in Christ Jesus, and in the church for all generations, forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, just your goodness and your kindness toward us.
We thank you that you call us to do things that we is impossible for us to do. That we can take all of our insufficiencies and all of the lacking that we have in our hearts and in our lives and we can um, rest that you are enough. Rest that you have provided all that we need and we can accept the love, the discipline, the fellowship, the presence and the power of our risen Savior Christ. Lord, we thank you for this table that you've given us and we look forward to sharing in communion together as we celebrate and remember your broken body, your shed blood. We give an opportunity to confess our sins, Lord. Would you take this truth that you've given us, help us to apply it right now as we commune together as the family of God. In Christ's risen name we pray, amen. Part of that beautiful picture of family that we are given in Scripture, and it's so painted, painted so well in Ephesians, this grafting of two into one essential new body, new race of people, God's family, is that he has given us this table to share. It's this incredible gift, right, that Christ has given, that there are no exclusions outside of faith in Christ. It's not a denominational table. It's open to all those who profess faith in Christ. It's open to anyone who says, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, because you are part of the family. And on that very night that Jesus was betrayed, that Thursday evening before he would be crucified and put on a sham of a trial and all these things that took place over that weekend, on that very night after he sat with the disciples and he ate with them the Passover meal and he washed their feet, he gathered with them and he took this loaf of bread as a, as a demonstration of what he was about to do. And after giving thanks, he said, this body is my body and it's broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you, that as long as you take of this bread and this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. It was an invitation to a forever family, to a table that has no end, an invitation to partake in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And all the disciples at that moment didn't recognize its significance. Some 2,000 years later, it's what unites us as family. This morning, we take communion by means of intinction, which is a fancy way of saying, as you come forward to a station in the front or the back, you take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and eat it and return to your seat um, and stand and worship with us as we close our time. The only obligation at this table is that you profess faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us to take it seriously, to honor the Lord and to examine our hearts so that when we take this bread and this cup, we do so with an attitude of confession and gratitude and humility. As we invite our elders to come forward to serve this morning, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. Thank you, Lord, that you are the King of kings, that you are the Lord of lords, that you are all things, that you are the father of this immeasurable family, that you are the great wisdom, that you are the great truth, Lord, that you are the one who draws us into what we have in you. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. We're definitely not deserving of it, yet you and in your infinite grace and wisdom, Lord, have given us this gift. We ask, God, that you would bless our time this morning as we share this meal together, that we would be a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. Amen.
as you come forward um, and share in this meal, we invite you to remain standing and we'll close our time in worship. Come, family of God. This is a 
pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the privilege of being part of a family that we don't deserve, but a family that we're given. We have a seat at this table where we are called your sons and daughters. Though we've done nothing to deserve it, Lord, you have loved us in a way that is immeasurable and indefinable. We thank you for the pouring out of the blood and the life of your son so that we might know you. We might experience your grace and your truth, Lord, that we are not enough, but you are. So, Lord, as we close our time in worship, may you be glorified and honored and exalted in all that we do and all that we are. May we be overwhelmingly grateful for a seat at the table of the family of God. And, Lord, may we love like you love. May our hearts be filled and overflow with an abundance that is immeasurable because of your goodness and your grace. We love you. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. And we worship you. Let's close our time in worship.
Hallelujah. Man, if your bucket ain't full right now, I'm not sure what to do. But Christ alone is worthy of our praise. Christ alone is worthy of all glory and praise. And he lets us be a part of what he's doing on planet Earth. I want you to just, as we've been talking this whole time, embrace the fact that you're in the family of God. Dive in to it. Run into your Father's arms. Find someone who you've not been reconciled to and be reconciled to them in Christ Jesus. 